many drinks can you safely consume a day? How many per week? Can you save all of your drinks for Saturday night? Many countries have issued guidelines on this subject, and today we're going to talk about it, so stick around. So before I get started, I want to thank all of my patrons who've joined on Patreon. Without you, we wouldn't be able to do this podcast. It's expensive, and we truly appreciate the support, but we bring a lot of extra value to our patrons. And I want to tell you about it in case you're thinking about joining up. We do a lot of in-person events. We're going to do some bottle shares. We're going to do some distillery takeovers. We're going to do some single barrels. We've got a Patreon-only challenge coin coming out. We've got massive discounts on Bourbon Real Talk merch. We have online events every month. It's a really great community, and you also get to know that you're supporting this cause and supporting this channel. So if you're thinking about it, go down to the description. There's a link. We'd love to have you as a patron. So let's get on to our disclaimers. Uh, first off, we are not giving you a specific number of drinks that you should be drinking. Okay, What we're going to do is try to educate you about the guidelines and give you a framework to make your own decision. And some of this information we share appears to be politically motivated, and we are going to report on it, but we will attempt not to take a side. We're not trying to alienate anyone uh, who may or may not disagree with this, you know, from a political standpoint. We just want to put information out there so that you're educated and make your own decision. And this channel distinctly recognizes that alcohol is a toxin, okay? It is called getting intoxicated because you are putting a toxin in your body. And we do not encourage anyone to consume it if they don't have a desire to do so. We're not telling you to start drinking if you don't. Uh, but we understand that alcohol is a major part of our society. And it's been a major part of human society since the beginning of human history. And we understand that people are going to do it. So we want you to understand the framework on how you're going to make this decision for yourself. Um, we also understand that there are tons of toxins that humans regularly consume to experience their properties. And we support those who choose to do so, uh, including alcohol. So we simply want individuals to make an informed decision. So here's the backstory. Since 2011, Canada has recommended no more than 10 drinks per week for women and no more than 15 drinks per week for men. But in January 2023, the, Can the Canadian Center on Substance Use and Addiction released a report funded by Health Canada in which they lowered the recommendation to zero drinks per week and warned that two drinks per week max was what you needed to do to stay at low risk. Uh, now, this is very, very ironic. And the reason why it's ironic was because within two weeks of this announcement in Canada, uh, health officials also are going to legalize the consumption and possession of crack cocaine and heroin in some areas of the country. Uh, and they're doing so on the recommendation from other researchers who determined that this was the best thing for public health. Now, the, the basic argument with legalizing crack and heroin is that people who are addicted will be less stigmatized when they go to get help to get off of the product uh, and that they want to you know, legalize it so it provides relief to the legal system 
because the people that are going to do crack and heroin are just going to do crack and heroin and there's no reason to waste public resources trying to prosecute that. Let's make it easier for them to go out there and get help for themselves. Um, but I just, you know, it just leaves me wondering how a country's health researchers can simultaneously be saying alcohol in any quantity is dangerous and should be restricted by the government and that a life-wrecking drug like crack cocaine or heroin should be legal. Ah, I knew I was a bigger Bourbon Real Talk fan than you. How do you know that? Well, because I don't just use a prideful goat, Glenn. I got a official Bourbon Real Talk tumbler. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Well, I got this Bourbon Real Talk lanyard to carry my whiskey glass in. Oh, well, speaking of whiskey glasses, do you have one of these? No, I don't. Rocks glass. Oh, yeah? Yep, official. Well, I love my wife, and I bought her this official whiskey wife flask from Bourbon Real Talk. Well, that's cute and everything, but I got my wife one of these. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And well, you can just add your own liquor, and it's an actual cocktail right there in a, in a jar. Me and my wife like to make cocktails, so we got this simple syrup off oh, the website. Oh, do you? Yeah. Okay. Well, do you and your wife have one of these? This is an official sticker. You can only get these on the website. Uh, no, but I do have these official coasters that have the Bourbon Real Talk logo on them, and I'm representing. Hmm. Well, while you're representing those little coasters of yours, I've got an aroma kit. Do you? Yeah, so I can smell literally everything in bourbon. Everything. Well, I don't have that, but I do have this sample box that I keep all my samples in because I'm part of the community and I share samples. Yeah, but do you have Glen Toppers that are officially Bourbon Real Talk? I don't have that, but I do have this large whiskey carrying case for my glasses so that I don't break them. See, I knew you had that. That's why I have this, the smaller version, okay? It packs more easily into your suitcase. Uh -huh. I don't have to mess with that big old thing, okay? Suitcase, that's for lamos. Check this thing out. I have a bourbon real talk bottle carrying bag. You can't beat that. I don't know if I can because And on top of that, I have a bourbon real talk t-shirt. I'm the bigger fan. Oh, I can beat that. Is it extra schmedium? No, I don't have an extra schmedium. Ha! Extra schmedium. You might be the bigger fan, you win. I knew it. So whether you're a Bourbon Real Talk super fan or simply looking for quality whiskey swag, head over to bourbonrealtalk.com today. Canada's 10 and 15 is now just two. Australia, since 2020, recommended a maximum of 10 standard drinks a week. Uh, male or female, France, suggests the same thing. So France is 10 standard drinks per week. Uh, the UK recommends no more than 14 a week, uh, male or female. The US recommends seven for women and 14 for men. Um, but you are only supposed to have one or two drinks a day and binge drinking is considered to be three or four drinks a day, whether you're male or female. Uh, and so that means in the United States, to stay inside the guidelines, you cannot save your drinks for the weekend. Uh, New Zealand says that women may have up to 10 drinks per week and men up to 15, but the guidelines suggest taking at least two alcohol-free days per week uh, and that's the basic frame line, framework for all of these guidelines. So for a while, we saw some consistency. I mean, obviously, every country has their, their own guidelines. Uh, but, you know, generally speaking, it was, you know, two drinks a day, have some dry days, you know, don't do more than 14 or 15 per week, and everything should be okay, right? Um, so what is causing the change? So this is a difficult problem for researchers to actually get data on uh, because there's ethics concerns. And I, I heard a quote from one of the researchers that says, there have been no randomized trials of alcohol consumption for any morbidity or mortality outcomes. 
The observational studies that comprise the bulk of the evidence incorporated in these reports are subject to a variety of threats of validity, um, mainly not control for confounding variables, only adjusting to age, etc. So basically what he's saying is, is we can't do a study where we give people alcohol until they die to figure out what kills them um, because there's an ethics concern there. And when you go to source this information from the general public, you have so many other contributing factors that could be influencing the outcome uh, of, of that person's health situation that it's very difficult to attribute it to just one variable because everybody's life is different, right? So studies generally rely on survey data and people lie on the surveys. They lie about how much they drink and the survey can't possibly capture all of the relevant information. So the, the other thing that we're gonna realize as we start to go through this is that proximity does not equal causation. So those put on a restrictive diet by a physician have been found more likely to die than those that were not put on a restrictive diet. I heard about this study whenever I was a teenager and the uh, researchers in the news report said, therefore restrictive diets kill people. And I remember being a teenager and thinking, huh, so there's no way that it could have been the 20 years of fast food that caused the physician to recommend the restricted diet to begin with that killed them. It had to be the restrictive diet right there at the end. That doesn't make any sense. And that is the definition of proximity does not equal causation. And we're gonna see that there's a lot of that in these research studies about alcohol and it's how safe it is. And that the researchers have a lot of leeway to decide what studies they're gonna use and what results they're gonna throw out. And they can pretty much come up with a research report that says whatever it is that they want. So uh, there are a lot of variables that are not accounted for. Um, some people, uh, abstain simply because they have health problems. Um, and so that throws the statistics off. Uh, some, some people abstain from drinking for financial reasons, which likes, likely means they have a worse diet, they have worse exercise habits, and they probably lack access to health care if they can't afford alcohol. And some people abstain because they have substance abuse problems in the past. And some people are light drinkers because it is a social activity, which means that they have more disposable income to engage in social activities, which means they probably have access to healthier food. They probably have access to exercise. They probably have better access to health care. And so there's a lot of other factors that come in and influence this. So did those surveyed that developed cancer, because that's one of the concerns, um, it, they're saying like there's this link between cancer and alcohol, uh, but they don't adjust for whether or not the people that consumed their alcohol did so in a smoky bar, right? Where they were exposed to other carcinogens that might've been a more reasonable cause for the cancer that they experienced. And then you have the whole problem of defining what safe is. Um, that is a big issue for these researchers. And in the Canadian uh, results, uh, researchers have to find some sort of a comparison uh, to risk of death. And what they decided to use in the Canadian report was the probability of dying from alcohol being no greater than dying from a motor vehicle accident. So they said, let's go research the mortality rates in motor vehicle accidents. And if, 
somebody who consumes this uh, level of alcohol has this much or less risk of dying from drinking alcohol, then that is an indication that society has accepted that this amount of risk is reasonable for lifestyle because they do it when they drive in cars is basically the logic. Um, but there are other factors that influence vehicle death rates, um, how experienced the drivers were that were involved in the accident, whether, um, let's face it, a lot of death driving or death and driving accidents is because of intoxication on alcohol or other substances. And then you have the whole problem of what is an alcohol death. So if somebody drinks five drinks a day, smokes a pack of cigarettes a day, works in a chemical plant for 30 years and dies of cancer, is that an alcohol death? Was it the exposure to chemicals at their job? Was it the smoking? And they are not adjusting for these things in these studies. And that's what makes it very difficult for researchers to come up with a clear answer. So one researcher said, there can't be a line we've drawn in the sand anymore below which we can guarantee safety. There is no entirely safe amount. And this leads to a bias to give a low number as safe. Uh, but again, they might be attributing some of these negative outcomes to the alcohol when it wasn't even a factor. Again, proximity does not equal causation. So. Uh, the opposite could also be said that since you can't find, uh, you cannot rule out the negative outcomes have come as a result of alcohol, there's no way to say that there is a particularly safe amount. Um, and so they got put in this weird situation where they had to give an answer and they're like, well, we know that if you don't drink any alcohol, alcohol can't kill you. Uh, is effectively the conclusion that they came to. So how did the CCSA come up with this recommendation? Uh, the Canadians' uh, report was 89 pages long. Um, and they released a summary of their study. Um, and in the summary, it stated that they used 6,000 studies to come up with their results. And uh, they claim the results are clear and that any amount of drinking is bad for your health. And in the summary, uh, there were some accompanying graphics uh, that were released to the media. And that's what all the media repeat reports were based on. Uh, very few people read the full report. Most of them just took the summary, said, hey, it's based on 6,000 studies. You can't argue with this, it's science. Uh, but if you read the full report, uh, you would have been told a totally different story. And the truth is that they considered 6,000 studies, but they eliminated all but 16. Think about that. There were 6,000 plus research studies done on the effects of alcohol on the human body. And these people came up with a set of criteria that would eliminate the results of studies at such a high rate that only 16 made it into their research. And of those 16, they admitted that the 16 they selected were all, and I quote, deeply flawed, but wrote the summary like it was common knowledge that their extremely biased results were just fact. And so I wanted to point this stuff out, not because I want to encourage you to drink, it's not because I, I'm not a scientist. I, I cannot tell you whether or not 
the risk ratios are what these people say that they are. But I can tell as a thinking human being that when you have a research study that's funded by the government for two full years, if those individuals came back with the same conclusion that they already had, do you think that they're gonna get another grant for another research study? And what does it mean when you consider 6,000 studies, but you eliminate all but 16 of them? And what it seems to mean to me is that they picked the studies that said what it was that they wanted them to say. Is there a link to a risk of cancer and heart disease and a host of other problems, liver damage, um, all kinds of things. We've talked about it before on the on the podcast. Absolutely. And there is, there is a level of drinking that puts you at much greater risk for those things. But Canada's move appears to be more political posturing uh, than it really has to do with them, you know, thinking about public policy. And, you, you know, you got to think about the, the traditional norms of how society uses alcohol. And if you do research, and I recently um, listened to an audiobook um, called Drunk, and it talks about the history of alcohol and the development of humans as a whole. And it was very fascinating to hear about the positive impacts that alcohol has had on human development. During the same week that I'm getting information from supposed scientists uh, that have gone through these 16,000 studies and are like, well, alcohol is not good, but crack is totally cool. Um, so, you know, this is a, a massive departure from um, traditional wisdom. Um, and I, I, I kind of feel like it's politically motivated. And uh, while legalizing crack cocaine and heroin are not the same as saying that they're safe for the consuming public, it's just ironic to me that simultaneously they're suggesting that any amount of alcohol is dangerous to the public. Um, while they are also arguing that decriminalization of hard drugs is actually the safest thing for the public. Um, those two things can't exist in the same space at the same time. I'm sorry, it just doesn't pass the sniff test. So uh, the, these factions of the medical research industry that want to reinstate prohibition, uh, they say some pretty aggressive things that as a free American, and I get that this is from... Uh, Canada, and you guys have different rules there. Um, but as a free American, I don't like the tone of some of the things that they said. Uh, one of the things they said was, we need to strengthen regulations on alcohol advertising and marketing and increase restrictions on the physical availability of alcohol and adopt minimum prices for alcohol. So this is the first stage to another round of prohibition. Right. And my question to the person who said that is, is, hey, why don't you solve the crack, heroin and opioid crisis by increasing restrictions on the physical availability of them and adopting minimum prices? Well, the reason why you haven't done that is because it doesn't work. So in conclusion, all of the quote unquote research on this subject, it's, it's deeply flawed, it's widely biased, um, and you have to consider who's funding it. But as we've already mentioned, there's definitely a le level of alcohol consumption that's going to have negative health effects. So that number is specific for each person. It depends on factors like your size, history of substance abuse, 
uh, overall health, history of cancer, heart disease, quality of diet, frequency of exercise, exposure to other substances and other things. So uh, if you think that you're drinking too much or that your health is being affected, it's probably time to cut back and in some cases quit altogether. I've mentioned before on this podcast, I was drinking daily and now I have um, at least three dry days per week and I've drastically cut back on my alcohol consumption uh, just for health reasons. So it's not that you should just drink all the time. I'm not saying that, but you have to make a personal decision for you. So, um, and, and if you're drinking more on the weekends than you do on weekdays, make sure to incorporate some of those dry days like I have. It helps. And, and only drink daily if you have extreme control over your intake. Uh, so that your weekly consumption stays at a reasonable range. Because if you tell yourself, I'm going to drink less during the week, and then you go hog wild on the weekend, and you end up with this really high drink count every week, that's not going to be good for your health. So if you're going to drink every day, just make sure that you don't go nuts on the weekend. Um, and, And do your own research. Check your overall health. Go to your doctor regularly. Have your blood work done. Check your blood pressure. Check your cholesterol. All of those things. Um... And then, and then you can come to a decision of what level of, of consumption is right for you. And then you just stick with it, okay? And, and that way you can make your own decision. So if this is your first time tuning into the channel, I'd like to thank you for the view and let you know a little bit about our philosophy. We are all about bringing people together around bourbon. And that's something that's personally important to me because of the connective power of whiskey. I lost a loved one to suicide. And I... I in, in trying to figure out what happened after my brother's passing, I realized that he had felt disconnected from the world around him and maybe felt like the, the, there wasn't a place for him in the future. And the antidote to that is community and connection. And I wanted to find ways to increase community and connection. And I saw the connective power of whiskey. And it made me think that maybe if I started a podcast like this and I helped you get connected to whiskey, the whiskey do the rest of the job and get you connected to others. And that also led to the creation of Bourbon Real Talk Community, which is a Facebook-based forum for viewers of this podcast to interact and connect with each other. And it's a very positive environment. There's not a lot of negativity there, no drama. And uh, we knew that we needed to create an environment like that because um, when I first started trying to build this community and connection and I got involved in some of the online forums, I did see the negative side, which are the trolls. And the trolls say really hateful things to strangers online. Uh, try and make themselves feel big, make the other people feel small. And we created Bourbon Real Talk um, as the antidote to that. Um, But it also made me realize that if those people can hate you online, even though they don't really know you, there's nothing that keeps me from loving you online, even though I don't really know you. And that's why I end every show the same way, and that's this. If you woke up this morning and you're unsure whether or not anyone loved you, just know that I love you. And I'll see you next time on Bourbon Rose. Just wait until you hear the con. You're going to be like, what the f***? In the same week, Canada's health professionals recommended and implemented legalization of crack f- cocaine. Same dumb mother Wow. Yeah. So when I saw that, I'm like, I'm doing a video on this shit. They all about that crack life. But you can't have no alcohol there. No, no, you don't want to hurt your health. You gotta stick with the crack. Crack ain't whack no more, not in Canada. Crack ain't whack. Crack ain't whack. All right.